Well, let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. We will be looking at verses 19 through 25 this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And as you find your place, if you will stand with me in honor of the reading of the word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that by the power of your spirit that your people would be encouraged and strengthened to live out their faith in this dark world in which they live. And I pray for those here who have never trusted in Christ, that even now your spirit would cause them to be born again. Open their eyes and their ears and their minds to hear, to understand, and to receive your truth. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I imagine that it would be nearly impossible to find a Major League Baseball umpire who is universally loved by players and fans alike. However even though that's probably uh, a runoff, if you were to ask who the worst umpire in the league is, it's very likely that you would hear the same name over and over and over again. Angel Hernandez. Anybody hear that name before? Angel Hernandez. Angel Hernandez has been an umpire in Major League Baseball since 1991, and in those 31 years, he has made some notoriously bad calls. Not only is he known for calling obvious strikes right down the middle of the plate as balls or balls far outside the zone as strikes, but he has also made egregious errors that have affected the outcome of the game. For example, in 2013, Oakland A's uh, Adam Rosales hit a ball off the wall in left center field, and video replay clearly showed the ball hitting the bar above the wall for a home run. Yet even after review, Angel Hernandez failed to rule it as a home run, and the A's went on to lose the game. Major League Baseball itself later admitted that this was a blown call. In another instance, in 2018, the American League Division Series Game 3 between the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees, Angel Hernandez at first base, 
Four of his calls were challenged and three were overturned in the first four innings. There are videos after videos of obviously botched calls. I watched one where the runner was clearly safe on first by a mile. Hernandez called him out and the TV announcers started yelling at him. Some of the best quotes I found online uh, about Angel Hernandez. If Angel Hernandez had another eye, he'd be a cyclops. If Angel Hernandez was a cop, he'd write a ticket to people who drove through a green light. You can make anyone look bad by selecting clips from their entire career. For Angel Hernandez, it would be difficult to select enough clips to make him look good. Every time Hernandez is behind the plate, you get the idea that it's the first baseball game he's ever been to. And, and that's the problem. That's the problem. Uh, no umpire is perfect. Um, and even the best umpire is going to botch some calls. That, that's just the, the nature of baseball. However, the criticism of Angel Hernandez is the frequency of his botched calls, the seriousness of his botched calls, and his failure to ever admit his errors. As a major league umpire, Hernandez should know not only the rules of the game, but he also should be able to effectively apply those rules to the real-world scenarios when he's umpiring. After 31 years on the field, you'd expect him to be more proficient than he is. A danger for many Christians, and I would submit to you the danger, especially for this church, not in general, for this church, is somewhat similar. We know the rules. We know how the game is supposed to be played, but does that knowledge translate into accurate application in the real world? As far as I can tell, we're, we're not, uh, we don't have a, a, a serious problem with correct doctrine here. Um, I, I don't think that we're in grave danger of, of uh, following some, some heresy. However, we are always going to be in danger of resting comfortably in our doctrinal accuracy while ignoring how we actually live. How does what we know translate into what we do? Now, that's not to suggest that we relax in guarding our doctrine. We ought to always be guarding our doctrine. Instead, it's a reminder and a warning that we have to put that doctrine into action. Pure, true Christian theology goes to work. Jesus chastised the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 because while they had correct doctrine and they were guarding against false teachers, they'd abandon love. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warned against hearing his word but not doing it. And in James chapter 2, the apostle teaches that faith, genuine faith, without works is dead. You can have theology that is correct, but so do the demons. Rather, your theology ought to affect how you live. If you read the scripture but fail to act accordingly, James says that you're like a person who looks at himself in a mirror, walks away, and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
He may have had ketchup on his face. He may have had his hair sticking up. His shirt is untucked and mismatched buttons. But he walks away. He immediately forgets and he doesn't change. You might know a lot of Bible and theological facts, but if you can't accurately apply those truths to the situations around you, all you are is the Angel Hernandez of the Christian faith, blowing call after call in your own life. And so as we approach Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 this morning, we come to the end of an argument that began in chapter 4, verse 14. In fact, it we're going to be kind of bouncing back and forth a little bit. You might want to find chapter 4 and, and put a bookmark there. And you're going to find some of the same language that's used in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And if this is your first time here or you missed a good section of Hebrews, this is a great day for you to be here because we're going to be hitting a lot of the same themes. We're going to be picking up themes in this passage that we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews so far. And in this long section, chapter 4, verse 14, which we began almost a year ago, if you can believe that, there's been a lot of theology a lot of theology. We, we've studied how Jesus is our great high priest, a high priest who is superior to the Levitical priest of Israel under the old covenant. Jesus is a high priest who doesn't get his priesthood because of his genealogy. Instead, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is high priest because of his indestructible, never-ending life. And because God swore an oath to him that he would be a priest forever. Jesus mediates a better covenant. He mediates a new covenant that has better promises than the old covenant. He is a great high priest who, who ministers not in a temple in Jerusalem, but in the heavenly places in the very presence of God. And he offers a better sacrifice, not bulls and goats, but the sacrifice of his own body, the sacrifice that actually takes away sin and forgives his people and brings them to God. Lots of theology. Lots of theology. Hopefully, you understand better why he warned them in chapters 5 and 6 not to be lazy in their hearing because he presented to them a ton of theology. And so hopefully... You weren't lazy and you listened and paid attention. And now as he closes out the theological argument, we're going to see these, these, these bookends of theology and how they're supposed to affect our lives. The passage before us, it not only summarizes his argument about Jesus' priesthood, it also serves to introduce an extended exhortation that lasts until the end of the book. We're in the home stretch now. The rest of Hebrews from this passage on to the end is a call to respond. Here's this long argument for the superiority of Christ's priesthood and sacrifice and this new covenant. What are you going to do with it? 
And the author includes himself. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do with everything that we know? Because the argument for Christ's superiority over which we've, we've labored for so long, it's, it's not so that you can score points in Bible trivia. It's so that you might persevere in the faith to the very end. There, there's a very practical reason for this book. Remember, he's writing to new Christians, primarily Jewish Christians, who are being tempted because of persecution and, and, and tribulation to abandon the church and go back, to go back to Judaism, to go back to the temple and the priests and the sacrifices. This is a real-world problem. And so what does he do? He lays out a ton of theology, a ton of theology. Doctrine is practical. And now he's going to explicitly drive home the point and show us what we're supposed to do with this. And so this morning, we're going to see how we've got to put all of these theological truths we've been studying to work. Because if in the end we filled our heads with Bible facts from the book of Hebrews, if you walk away and say, well, I know so much more about Melchizedek than I did several years ago, but you never actually put it into action, you don't know what that's supposed to do for you, then we've just wasted our time. We've just wasted our time. So, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. In the original Greek, fun fact, this was one long run-on sentence. But our text divides very nicely into two sections. And I hope that you'll be able to see these two sections Two points, several subpoints. The first is found in 19 through 21. Two concluding theological truths to remember. Two concluding theological truths to remember. And then in verses 22 through 25, there are three ways in which we are encouraged to put our theology into action. All right, so chapter 10, verses 19 through 21, two concluding theological truths that you need to remember. The first one is found in verses 19 and 20. We can enter the presence of God because of Jesus' death on the cross. We can enter the presence of God because of Jesus' death on the cross. Look at what he says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. If you write in your Bibles, if you mark in your Bibles, you can, I think, easily see these divisions and you can see these points. The, the two theological truths are both introduced with the word, if you're using the ESV, since. So you can just circle those and you can see both of them. The first one, 19 and 20, we can enter the presence of God because of Jesus's death on the cross. Again, these are, these are summaries of what we've seen, especially in chapters 8 through 10. So we're not going to rehash them all over again. So you can just kind of breathe a sigh of relief, wipe the sweat off your brow. We're not going to be re-preaching through these chapters. But this is a summary. And again, we need this reminder. We need to know where we've been so that we can put it into action. So he says that since we have confidence to enter the holy places, this word confidence, it's the word for boldness and, and courage. It, it carries the connotation of freedom. One commentator said that this carries the, the, the connotation of authorization. 
since we have been authorized to enter the holy places. The people of the Old Testament couldn't enter the holy place. That, that's where God was, behind the curtain. We sang about it. The, this curtain with cherubim that were, that were um, sewn into this curtain, it, it blocked the way the people could not enter into the presence of God. Only the high priest could. And even he could only enter once a year with the blood of sacrifice. However, this, this verse should be a, a nuclear bomb for us. However, we have confidence to enter the holy place. We have the courage. The, we have the freedom. We have the authorization to enter into the presence of God. Not with the blood of bulls and goats. Not with this presumptuousness that's based upon our good works or upon our religious rituals. What does he say? We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. His blood is superior to that of an animal. He is the eternal son of God. He is the one who took on our humanity. He took on our flesh and he lived and he died as our representative. And so by the blood of Jesus, we now have the, the confidence, the boldness to enter into the very presence of God. He has opened for us, verse 20. He has opened for us that, that, that word is the same word for inaugurated. This is New Covenant language. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way. This is not the Old Covenant remix. This is a new and superior covenant. You go back to chapter 8 and read through the New Covenant passage again. That's what he's talking about. It's not the Old Covenant again. So we're not just going through the same routine again. This is new and it is different and it is superior. It is a new way that Christ has opened, that he has inaugurated. But it's not just new, it's living. It's living because Jesus is our ever-living priest. He has opened this way for us. We haven't opened the way for ourselves. We have not somehow come up with a, a, a method that's better than that of the Israelites of the Old Testament. We haven't drummed up something. This is not the work of some pastor or bishop or pope or theologian who said, wait, we, they tried the animal sacrifices. Let's try something else. This is a new and living way that Christ has opened by his blood through his flesh as our representative as the eternal son of God in human, human flesh and in, in our clothed in our humanity who through his bloody death through his flesh has opened this new and living way for us and so verse 20 says that by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and what this phrase means exactly has caused some debate. Surprise, surprise, we come across something difficult in the book of Hebrews. 
the curtain that is his flesh. What, what's he talking about? Well, the curtain is the, the curtain in the Jerusalem temple. We can go back to chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and we can read about this again, this, this curtain that divided the temple into two. If you were a priest and you were allowed to enter into the temple building proper, you would come into the holy place. There's the altar of incense, there is the bread of the presence, there is the lampstand, and then there is a curtain. And it divides the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, where God is. This curtain, it separated the people from God. Behind the curtain is where God is. It's where God's presence dwelt with Israel in a special place. And so when they constructed the tabernacle, when they constructed the temple, the cloud of God's glory came down on the temple and the, the priest could not enter because God is there in a special way. And now this curtain is dividing the people from where God is. But how is the curtain and Jesus' flesh related here? I don't think we need to push the imagery too far. Jesus is not separating us from God. Rather, I, I think that the picture is that just as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies by moving through the curtain, we have confidence to enter God's presence through Christ. He is the only way. There's not a back door that the priest can go around and enter into the Holy of Holies. He had to go through the curtain. You have to go through Christ. But I think that the combined reference to blood, curtain, and flesh may have another reference. And I think it may be found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 through 51. Listen to Matthew's account here. He says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. It's that same dividing curtain that is torn from top to bottom at the death of Jesus. If the writer of Hebrews has this event in mind here in chapter 10, then it adds, I think, another layer to the meaning of, of this verse. The torn curtain symbolizes the torn body of Christ. His flesh was rent for sinners. And in his death, the curtain in the temple is rent in two. By his death on the cross, he has opened the way for us to God. We can approach God, we can confidently enter the holy places because of the blood of Jesus. That's the first theological truth that we ought to remember. The second one is found in verse 21. We have a living high priest who rules over God's people. We have a living high priest who rules over God's people. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. We have a great Priest. This is the most common Hebrew title for the high priest in the Old Testament. 
numbers, if you're using the ESV numbers, 21 verse 10 renders it the priest who is chief. Leviticus 35 verses 25 and 28 reads high priest, but it literally reads great priest. We have this great priest, this high priest over the house of God. And this is a similar idea that's found in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 and verse 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Verse 6 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We have this, this idea is picked up again here in chapter 10. We have this great priest over the house of God. We have this great priest. Chapter 4, verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Chapter 7, verse 26, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Chapter 8, verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This is the great high priest that we have. We have him. Not this is the priest that we hope to have. Not wishful thinking. We have this high priest, this Jesus, in all of his infinite perfections, who died but has been raised from the dead who has ascended and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, whoever lives to intercede for all of those who come to God through him, this high priest who helps those who are tempted, who sympathizes with them in our weaknesses, who is ruling, whose every enemy will be made a footstool for his feet, who is coming again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the great high priest that we have. This Jesus is the one we as a church confess. We have no other high priest than this Jesus. Two concluding theological truths to remember. We can enter the presence of God because of Jesus' death on the cross we have a living high priest who rules over God's people. Hold on to those theological truths. Go back and reread through Hebrews and, and really meditate upon this. Let it percolate in your minds. Let, let, it, let the, the fullness of it, the, the massive power of it explode in your brain. But don't stop there. We have these truths, but now what are we supposed to do with them? We put them to work. They're presented here so that by knowing them and by acting upon them, we might persevere. That we might persevere. No matter the circumstances, no matter the trials and the temptations and the sufferings, when the culture hates us, when, when all seems lost, when we feel doubts and fears and despairs, remember your doctrine Don't be someone that criticizes this, this doctrine. Ah, we don't need that doctrine, that, that boring doctrine. That, that's not going to bring people in. That's not going to fill the pews. We need something exciting. 
Church, don't forget your doctrine. Don't forget your doctrine. That's why we have Sunday school classes where we teach doctrine. That's why on Wednesday nights we have a catechism class for the kids that teaches them doctrine. That's why we sing these these songs that are rich with theological truths, with doctrine. That's why we, we stand at the pulpit and open up the book and we teach doctrine. Hold on to your doctrine. When, when trials come, when you're thrown into prison and your Bible is torn away from you, it's too late for you to be thinking, what's my doctrine again? You need to hold on to your doctrine. You need to learn your doctrine now. And then live it out. Live it out. So we come to the second point found in verses 22 through 25. This is where we, we really want to spend our time. This is the emphasis of this passage. Those two theological truths, they're summary of, of all these chapters before. But here, here is where we're, we're going to transition into this long exhortation that is going to lead us to the end of the book. And here in verses 22 through 25, we have three ways in which we are encouraged to put our theology into action. Three ways in which we are encouraged to put our theology into action. And I hope that you'll see these three encouragements clearly in the text. They each begin, I looked at a wide variety of translations, no matter what you're using, unless you're using, you know, the message, don't use the message. It should, they, all three of these should begin with, let us. Let us. You should be able to see those. If you write in your Bible, just circle those. You'll see all three of them very clearly. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. All three, right there. Three ways in which we are encouraged to put our theology into action. Let's spend time on these three encouragements and try to unpack them a little bit so that you can, you can live out your theology, you can live out your doctrine. These three encouragements also follow the formula. If you look at those three, they follow the, the pattern of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. Verse 22, let us draw near Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is a callback again to chapter 4 verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest. That's verse 14. Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Since we have this great high priest, that's what he said in chapter 4, that's what he says here in chapter 10, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. To draw near, that, that phrase to draw near is a favorite phrase in Hebrews, and it means to approach God in worship. It's parallel to chapter 10, verse 19, since we have confidence to Enter the holy places, so we can put these two verses together, since we have confidence, boldness, authorization to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near. Again, the way was shut, but now it is open. And so the exhortation is, go, 
go. Can you imagine Old Testament Israel? The people have to gather outside in the courtyard. They cannot go into the building. There, there is, the way is blocked. Can you imagine if, if suddenly Moses appeared and said, the way is open, go. How, how the people would flock to go into the presence of God. This, is, this, was, this was a fantasy for Old Testament Israel. It's a reality for God's people now under the new covenant. Don't miss that. Don't, we, we, need to, we need to have that impressed upon us. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The way was shut. You could not approach God. Now we're told over and over and over again, go. Go. Go with, with confidence. How are we to draw near? With a true heart in full assurance of faith. I want you to really grasp this because a lot of Christians, they really struggle with this. You can have assurance of your salvation. You can have assurance of your salvation. Remember last week, the Roman Catholic cardinal who said the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance? He must have missed this verse. Because this verse says, you can, in fact, it's a command, you must have full assurance. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So why do so many Christians struggle with assurance? I'm sure there are Christians in here who have struggled with assurance, it's not uncommon. You're not some kind of weirdo if, you're, if you've ever struggled with assurance of faith. If you're struggling right now with assurance of faith, it's, it's not uncommon. I've had people come to me again and again and again over the course of, of 20 years asking me, how can I know that I'm a Christian? Why do so many Christians struggle with assurance? I think here's the problem. We too often base our assurance on what we do instead of on what Jesus has done. The problem, if you're struggling with assurance, examine yourself. I, I think that you will find this to be the case. You're basing it on something subjective to you instead of on the objective reality of what Jesus has done for his people. I walked an aisle, I said a prayer at youth camp, but did I really mean it? I was baptized, but were my motives right? I've sinned in the same way that I've sinned, it seems like a thousand times. And so we doubt. We doubt, we don't have assurance because we're basing it on something that we have done. We doubt because we're looking at ourselves. And when we do, we're like Peter. We find ourselves sinking under the stormy waves. What has the author of Hebrews been emphasizing over and over and over again? The superiority of Christ. His powerful high priesthood. His effectual sacrifice for his people. The new covenant with its five I will statements. Look again at the new covenant. Nowhere does it say, you have to do this. 
I will do this. I will do this. Five times, God, the Holy Spirit, says, I'm going to accomplish the new covenant for my people. We draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, not based in something that we've done. We draw near by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way made through his flesh, rooted and grounded in his perfect person, in his precious blood. He has done it all. He has done it all. So we may draw near, and we may draw near, not, not, not fearfully, not with doubt, but in full assurance, confidently. I always urge people when they come and, and ask me, how, how can I know? Are you trusting in Jesus now? Because we, we want to say, well, I did something 15 years ago. I, I walked an aisle when, when I was younger. I said a prayer when I was younger. What are you doing today? What are you doing today? Are you trusting in the finished work of Jesus it's an objective reality. Christ has died for sinners. And if you will trust him, you'll, you'll throw all of your sin on him. If, you, if you'll cast all, all of your, your future upon him, he saves sinners. That's not a subjective maybe. That, that's an objective truth. Today, if you will trust in Christ, he saves and you can have assurance because of what he has done. And you can draw near confidently. We're urged to draw near because our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. The gifts and the sacrifices of the old covenant, they could never perfect the consciousness of sinners. We saw that in chapter 9, verse 9. They couldn't do it because in these these repeated sacrifices, there was a reminder of sin. But when Christ offered himself without blemish to God, we read in chapter 9, verse 14, he purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The author here is pulling on several strings all at once. First is the, the water of purification. We read about that in chapter 9, verse 13. This, this, uh, this red heifer that they would, they would burn up and they would put the ashes into the water and anyone who was unclean would bathe in this water of purification found in Numbers chapter 19. We have been washed with something better that actually cleanses our consciences, that actually purifies us. The second strand I, I, I think that he's, he's pulling on is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, where God, speaking about the new covenant, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The, the new covenant, it's, it's spoken of in this, this washing, this purification. But the third string I think that he's pulling on is, is I think, pretty obvious. I, I think that it would be hard for us to imagine these believers hearing of how their bodies were washed with pure water without thinking about baptism. In fact, Peter, he brings out the same the same theme in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. He says that baptism, which corresponds to this, which corresponds to Noah and, and the ark, it now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. He, he has the same idea that the writer of Hebrews has, a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been washed by the blood of Christ by the Spirit's work in the new covenant, we've been sprinkled clean. And all of this has been symbolized by the outer washing of baptism. And so we can draw near. Now, what does it mean to draw near? After all, we, we have this encouragement to do so, along with this powerful reason to do so. But what does it look like? What, what does it look like in a, a really... Uh, just day to day, what does it look like to draw near to Christ? How, how do we do it? Well, this is, again, this is Old Testament language. The people, the, the priest, they would draw near to worship. They would approach God. How did they draw near? They drew near through the sacrificial system. Now, you dare not draw near except through God's prescribed way. In the Old Covenant, you would draw near through these animal sacrifices, but they, they couldn't actually bring you to God because they had to be repeated over and over and over again. They didn't actually cleanse your conscience. You had a, a yearly and a daily reminder that there's something that's keeping me from God and something has to die in order for me to get to God. And these early Christians, they were being tempted to return to this old way. But instead, in this verse, they're encouraged to draw near through Christ. And so are we. Since verses 19 through 21 are true, let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith. In other words, let us believe the gospel. Let us trust in Christ, not, not trusting in the animal sacrifices, not trusting in the Levitical priest, not trusting in our good works or, or in, in some kind of rituals that we go through. We draw near through Christ. Let us believe that through Christ our sins are forgiven and that now we can confidently approach God in worship and prayer in our songs, we can with full assurance come to God through Christ and know that our worship is acceptable in God's sight. That's kind of a big deal. And I think that we, we come and we're in such a habit of coming and well, it's Sunday morning, we start with a prayer and then we sing some songs and there's some more prayer, then we sing again, then there's a sermon, we, we sing again, we pray and we leave. We, we miss the, the power of it. God accepts your worship through Christ. Through Christ, the infinite, eternal, perfect God of the universe 
is pleased with your singing. You may have the most off-key voice. When you pray, you may stumble and stutter through it because you're just not quite sure what the, the words are. If you're coming to God as Father because Christ has died for you, God is well pleased with you. He's well pleased with you. You can draw near to God with full assurance that you are accepted because of Jesus. No guilt, no shame. Nothing should ever prevent you from approaching God. Everything you do in public and private worship should be done with this attitude. That God is accepting my worship because of Jesus. And wherever you are, you can draw near to God with full assurance. With the reality of of what Christ has done for us before our faces. May we believe and keep believing and draw near to a God who loves us. Spurgeon wrote a a great long devotional in his book, uh, Morning and Evening, but he ends it with this great encouragement. Come boldly, O believer, for despite the whisperings of Satan and the doubtings of thine own heart, thou art greatly beloved. That's not wishful thinking. That is objective reality because of what Jesus has done for us. Let us draw near. The second encouragement for us is found in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Again, chapter 4, verse 14, it mirrors it. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We have this great priest over the house of God. And so we are encouraged to hold fast, to maintain, to hold the course. Chapter 3, verse 6, tells us Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Chapter 3, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have these, these twin truths to bring together that it's all been done by Christ. He has paid it all. Now you are, based on what God has done for you in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, hold on, hold on, hold fast, hold fast the confession of our hope, hold fast the gospel, the message of who Jesus is and what he's done to redeem sinners. And we're to do this without wavering. The New International Version 
says unswervingly. The word holds this idea of, of unbent, unyielding, resolute, firm. It literally means without leaning. This isn't sinless perfection. Don't become discouraged by thinking, I've, I've got to do this without ever doubting, without, without any kind of, of lack of faith. This is not sinless perfection. It's perseverance. It's perseverance. The, when the sea is raging, when the wind is howling and the, the sky is black and the sea spray is drenching your face and every muscle aches and there's, there's no sign that the storm is letting up, yet you stand at the helm and stay on course and you won't give up until you reach the port, that is holding fast your confession without wavering. Why do we do this? Because we're so bold and so strong and we, we'll, we'll do it ourselves. That's not what the passage tells us. Hold fast your confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. This reaches back to chapter 6, when God made a promise to Abraham. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You can hold fast because God is holding fast to you. There is an anchor that's holding you to God's throne in heaven where Jesus has gone. These Christians have experienced the hostility of an unbelieving society. In a couple of weeks, we'll see this. All you have to do is drop down to verses 33 and 34. They've been publicly maligned, they've maybe been beaten thrown in the prison, their property's been confiscated, they've been ostracized from the synagogue, ostracized from society, kicked out of the family. In the midst of all of this, he writes to them, let us hold fast the confession of our hope, for he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. And we have a living and reigning great high priest as proof of this. God will keep all of his promises. He has sworn an oath. He cannot lie any more than he can cease to be God. Christ has entered into the holy place in heaven. And he's there like an anchor that we can hold on to. Go back to the new covenant passage. The new covenant is not like the old covenant. The old covenant, the people of Israel broke it. 
The new covenant is not like the old covenant. The new covenant is unbreakable because it's not based upon the works of the people. It's based upon the promises of God. And God is faithful. The new covenant promises are all true for all of God's people. The currents of this life may toss us about, but we have an anchor that will never be moved. And so we persevere in hope. This is more than just an encouragement to remain a Christian. This is encouragement to proclaim the gospel boldly. You can hold fast your confession and you can proclaim it and preach it no matter where you are. And regardless of the response, regardless of how the the culture treats you, you can have hope because God is faithful. And God will keep you to the very end. And God will ensure that his gospel goes out to all the earth and that all of those for whom Christ died will come to him. F.F. Bruce, writing in his commentary, said, Our hope is based on the unfailing promises of God. Why should we not cherish it confidently and confess it boldly? We're to draw near. We're to hold fast. The third and final encouragement is found in verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We are called to persevere, but we are not called to persevere alone. That's good news, right? That's good news. It can seem really scary. Hold fast to to your confession when the the Romans are coming for you. The the Jewish religious leaders are coming for you and and they they may throw you in the prison. They may let you off with a beating or they may kill you. Hold fast. That's scary. Until you read this verse, we're not called to do it alone. We're not called to go at it alone. Christ didn't just save us individually. He saved us corporately. F.F. Bruce, again, in his commentary, I, I like what he says about this verse. He says, the readers will be the more apt to confess their hope courageously and unhesitatingly if they encourage one another. Christian faith and witness will flourish the more vigorously in an atmosphere of Christian fellowship. Every word in this verse deserves some thought. Let let us consider or observe or or take note of. This is not an accidental action. This is deliberate. This is intentional. We have to not only be around each other, But we have to be so concerned with each other and and we have to love each other so much that we're willing to be invested in each other's lives in order to obey this verse. Let us consider, let us observe how we can do these things. You're not going to accidentally fall into this verse. You have to say, this is what it says and I'm going to actively pursue obedience. Let us consider, let us observe how to stir up one another. To stir up, that's a, that's a strong word in the Greek. The only other instance of this exact word in the New Testament is in a negative usage in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, where Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement. Same word, sharp disagreement. 
But another form of the word is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, and Acts chapter 17, verse 16, where it's translated as irritated or provoked. Paul is walking through Athens and he sees all of these idols and his spirit is provoked. It's a, it's a, a, a cognate word of what we see here in chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, love is not easily provoked. Right? It's a strong word. Different translations use different synonyms. All different translations have different words here for let us stir up. Let us consider how to provoke one another, King James. Or how to stimulate one another, New American Standard. How to motivate one another. Promote Spur one another on. One commentator translates it as we are to excite one another to love and good works. We can only really do this by being together. I'm not irritated by people when they're not around, right? We have to be together. Let us consider how to, to stir up one another to love and good works, how to be obedient, how to be faithful. We need to be encouraging, exciting one another, provoking one another to doing these things. Verse 25 tells us not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. You can imagine in this context that, that some, probably out of fear of persecution, have have already stopped meeting with the church. Perhaps they've gone back to the synagogue and, and Jewish worship in the temple already. Or perhaps they are just trying to go it alone. I can be a Christian. I can be a good Christian at home. I don't have to go somewhere. The church, the church isn't a building. It's, it's a people. You ever heard this? I mean, it's a pretty common, pretty common sentiment. I don't need to go somewhere. I can, I can just be at my home. And if I don't leave home on Sunday morning to go there, then maybe I can ex escape some of the, the negative things that are going on. But, but here, the, the, the author is urging them not to abandon the weekly meetings of the church. And I would urge the same for you. Now, this is not talking about those who are too ill to attend or or those who are somehow providentially hindered from, from coming. Rather, he's addressing those who, through laziness or apathy, those who are maybe indifferent about attending when some other event conflicts on Sunday morning, or, or maybe they make excuses about being too busy. Maybe they're too scared, and so they've forsaken the church. This is not a one-time missing. This, it says, is the habit of some. This is something that has become a regular occurrence. This is something that they don't even really think about going to church anymore. They've got other things that have crept in and taken priority. Baptist churches are notoriously bad about church attendance. In the Southern Baptist Convention alone, they have 16 million members on file. That's a pretty good number. Until you see that only an average of 6 million attend weekly. 
10 million of them are, who knows? That's not so great. Because it's become the, the habit of many. Apparently 10 million to neglect the meeting together. This is no small thing for the author of Hebrews. We can, we can often just kind of think, well, you know, don't know where they've been. I'm sure they're around here somewhere. This is no small thing for the author of Hebrews. He's not brushing off these people who have stopped coming. To stop coming for the author of Hebrews signals apostasy. They haven't just left the weekly church meeting. He says by doing so, they've left the faith. Next week, we're going to see a very strong warning. I know you guys love the warning passages. we got another one coming, and it's a doozy. And it's right on the hills of don't neglect meeting together. We've got to take church attendance seriously. Look around. Look around. Who's, who's missing? We have, to, we have to consider. We have to be observant. We have to be intentional to stir up one another to love and good works. Well, there are people here that we can't do that. We can't do that because they're not here, right? You, you can't stir up somebody if they're not here. Look around. This is, uh, this is audience participation time. Look around. Who, who's missing? Who's missing? Because there are some people missing. Who could you contact this week? Who could you stir up this week? Don't hear me wrong. This is not who can I see is missing so I can tell George or one of the other elders so that they can go and do it. Who can you encourage? Who can you invite back? Who can you challenge? I, I've noticed you've been gone for several weeks. We, we need you back. Do you need a list of members, contact information? All you have to do is ask. I could print you out one right, right now. If you need to know who our members are and, and how you can get in contact with them, we've got it. We've got it. All you got to do is ask. Super easy to shoot a text to somebody. I missed you. I hope everything's doing well. Do you need anything? I hope to see you next Sunday. Now, it's easy to preach against sin that's not in the room. But if you're in attendance this morning, then you're here. You haven't neglected the gathering. So let me go one step deeper and really aim for those toes this morning. These two verses are about more than just church attendance. Yes, church attendance is there. But it's sandwiched between stir up one another, and encourage one another. Let me state it very bluntly. If you attend the worship service every week, but you aren't involved in the lives of other members, you're not obeying these verses. This isn't just make an appearance. This isn't just, well, they, they saw that I was here, so I can check that off, and I don't have to worry that someone's going to call me this week. Right? 
If you're the last one to sneak in before the service starts and the first one to jet out when we're dismissed, you're probably not encouraging or stirring anyone to love and good works. You might be irritating somebody, but not in the way that this verse is encouraging us to do so. What about community group? What about the monthly members meetings? We can always find excuses for not doing these things, but imagine the blessings that would flow for our church out of love put into action. Being observant of one another, taking, taking some time to, to, to just show love towards one another, to stir up one another to love and good works. We need to be engaging with one another out of love. And this isn't, this isn't just some preference. This is a matter of perseverance. Listen to chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This, this isn't a matter of opinion or preference or even comfort. The context of this verse shows that we need this. We need this. We need each other. You need the church and the church needs you. And we do this, he says, at the end of the verse. All the more as you see the day drawing near. We do this in preparation for the day or the coming of Christ. As we see it approaching, what are we to do? Abandon the church? Sleep in? Find excuses not to come? Come so long as our schedules allow it? That's not what he says. Don't abandon the church, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The, the closer we are to the, the coming of Christ, the, the more tightly you ought to hold on to the church. And on those worst of days, when you just feel like hitting snooze or rolling over, you need the church. We're to encourage one another all the more. And that means we have to be around each other. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary on Hebrews says, perseverance is not merely a private matter. It is also reflected in whether believers meet corporately with one another. Refusing and failing to meet regularly with other believers corporately calls into question whether someone truly belongs to God. It is not simply a nice thing for Christians to do. It is necessary preparation for the day of judgment. He goes on to say, those who persevere in faith also persevere in love. If we love one another, we'll be around each other. Go throughout the letters of the New Testament and see how many times you can count one another. We're supposed to do things for one another. And you can't obey 
if you're not involved in people's lives? How are you going to bear the burdens of another Christian if you don't know what those burdens are? If they don't feel comfortable coming to you and sharing those burdens, how are you going to bear those burdens? If you sneak in and then jet out, no one's going to come to you saying, I'm really struggling. And yet that's what we're supposed to be doing. Even if we're tired or we're grumpy or we annoy each other, we ought to put our theology to work in love to ensure that we all together persevere to the very end. We cannot be content with a Christian faith that is filled with rich theological truths that have zero effect on our lives. Real faith works. Real faith works. Not to earn God's favor, but because we've been shown the infinite grace and love and mercy of a kind God who has sent Christ to die for us. Because of that, we're supposed to respond. And we've been reminded of two theological truths about Christ that should fill us with wonder and amazement. We just get so accustomed to hearing it. It just kind of washes over us and, and we leave here so unaffected. We need to be reminded, and that's what, that's what we've seen today, these two truths that, that really should amaze us and, and cause us to worship. But maybe you've never trusted Christ Maybe you're here and you, you, you've heard these truths, but they haven't affected you. You haven't seen any kind of change. And, and the reason for that is because you're not a Christian yet. You're not a Christian. This isn't something that you can just drum up. You can't, you can't just produce this on your own. These are things that come by the power of God's Spirit through the life of someone that has been regenerated and converted. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ and you hear this and you say, I, I, want, I want this, I want this. Well, even right now, you can pray to God to save you. You can pray, God, show me Christ. Help me to repent. Help me to believe. You can do it right now. You, can, you don't have to leave. You don't have to wait for, for some... some massive celestial sign to, to tell you that now's the time to become a Christian. Today, while there is still time, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. And, and we have a, a, a Jesus who really did die on the cross to take away sin. He really did rise from the dead. He really is the only way to God. Trust in him. And if you need to talk to me or one of the elders or, or any of the people in, in the pews who are holding fast to, to the, the hope that they confess. They can tell you what it means to follow Jesus. And for my brothers and sisters, since we have this glorious gospel, let us live out our faith in these three ways. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And let us meditate upon the riches of Christ Jesus. And may us, may we, by, by the by power of God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, by his grace, may we all persevere to the end. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for your word and how it is so full of rich theological truths, how how it constantly has been reminding us of who Christ is and what he's done for us and how he's poured out his spirit who brings us to Christ, who unites us to him, who who ensures that all of the promises of the new covenant are true for every one of Christ's people. May we meditate upon these truths. May we be affected by them. God, I pray that you would you would stir us up. That your spirit would stir us up to love and good works. That we might actively live out the truths of the gospel. That, that the doctrines that we confess, that they would cause us to, to draw near and to, to hold fast and to, to stir up one another. God, be gracious to your people. Be gracious to this church. And I pray that that the city around us will look at us and know us as followers of Jesus because of our love. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.